This podcast was recorded on September 5th, 2019. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. All right, welcome to The Sherman Show. I'm Jeff Sherman here with my co-host, Samuel Lau. Hey, hey. And we have a special guest dialing in from Atlanta, Georgia today. Her name is Stephanie Lang, and she is the principal and only the chief investment officer at Homrick Berg, an RA located in Atlanta. Welcome, Stephanie. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks for joining us. We've known each other for a pretty long period of time now. Maybe you can explain to folks how you got in the world of finance and landed with an, an RA. Well, I started my career in equity research at Robinson Humphrey, which is a regional investment banking firm, covered tech stocks through the 90s. So that was definitely an interesting time. I think my sector was called PC and peripheral, so it kind of dates myself in what was thought of as the tech world. Quickly saw that crash in the late 90s, of course, and moved over to media for a while. I came to the realization that a sell-side analyst was really not somewhere where I wanted to have my career. So I moved over to Bank of America in their private bank. And there I managed portfolios for mostly individual and trust and IRAs. And I like that, but I didn't really like the model that was being used at Bank of America. They had clients mostly in their own products. It was pretty cookie cutter, and there was really the push to see how many clients you could manage. So I also wanted to get back to my analytical roots back in equity research, but wanted to do something broader in asset allocation, not be kind of combined to a sector. So kind of looked out there, was looking at pensions, family offices, multifamily offices like Homrick Berg, and ultimately came to interview at Homrick Berg and really was impressed by the way they managed their clients, very high touch, high service, and they had a really unique investment offering. They had a lot of alternative investments, which was fairly unusual for a firm this size. So they were pioneers in that area. And more than anything, it was just the people. There's highly intelligent people that work hard, but also very down to earth and really put the client first. So it was something that really resonated with me. So that was almost 15 years ago. Okay. And so you talked about the, at the time, the proliferation of alternatives. What was attractive about that in offering these kind of services to the end client? Yeah. So at the time, Humbert Berg had formed their first hedge fund of funds back in 1999, and they also were in a number of private investments, a lot of real estate. They did some oil and gas. They were buying oil and gas wells and then trying to get the production up and then selling them later, and I thought it was a nice diversifier for portfolios, and I liked the way that their model was always to 
provide these type of investments to clients, but never charge anything additional for them. So Harmerberg is kind of based on this mantra of being non-biased and objective. So enabled to do that, we're not being paid by anyone but our clients. And so if, when we put together these fund of funds, whether it's in real estate or private debt, private equity, et cetera, we're doing it because we think this is really the best way for clients to seek better returns, but we're not earning anything extra on that. So I think it's really compelling to our clients because they're getting access to investments that they otherwise wouldn't be able to get it, and they know that we're putting their best interests ahead of theirs because we're not earning any additional management fee or carry. Right. So you're talking about like on a hedge fund or a fund of funds product, you're not slapping on an extra 1% management fee or an extra 10% of the profits that some organizations do that you end up buying the underlying fund, but then the distributor or whoever is working there is paying an incremental fee or actually the client's paying it, but they're charging it to the client as another fee for just sourcing that vehicle. That's what you're referring to, right? Correct. Yes. Typically... Our clients are, say, 2 to $10 million net worth, and we also have clients that are several hundred million in net worth. So our typical client in the 2 to 10 range can't access these investments that might have a million or $5 million minimum. It just doesn't make sense and doesn't give them the diversification. So they can put, say, 250000 into our fund of funds and, like you mentioned, not pay any additional fees and get a nice diversification, and we think, by investing in these private assets, that they'll be able to earn some sort of premium over the public markets. So that's why we put clients into these type of assets. So you're talking about this idea when you first joined back in 2005. How has the role of alternatives and private placements and private investments in general, how has that changed as a percentage of the overall allocation? Has it increased? Has it been somewhat steady? And what does that look like to, let's say, when you were at Bank of America prior to joining and how you thought about asset allocation there? Well, when I was at Bank of America, a typical client for us, say 2 to 10 million that I might have been managing there, really had no alternative and really not a good way to access them. Here, we've definitely become more kind of formalized in our approach to alternatives where before we would create these fund of funds and clients would put whatever was appropriate for their portfolio. But now we're saying, okay, if you're willing to take on some illiquidity, we think you should probably be in a 10 to 12% range. But then we have clients that are much larger and have plenty of money to sustain their lifestyle and for generations to come that are really just seeking the best returns that they can get. And so those clients may have 50% plus in alternatives. And those type of clients wouldn't go into our fund of funds. They're big enough to go direct to the underlying funds that our fund of funds would invest in. So we're really kind of able to cater to the whole spectrum of kind of your typical high net worth client to the ultra high net worth or family office type client that we also serve. Okay, got it. And so it sounds like what your offerings are are really unique and somewhat tailored to your clientele, or is that just for your, as you call them, the ultra high net worth individuals that get that really high level of customization? Yeah, right now we have four kind of fund of funds that we pocket different strategies into. We have 
our hedge product, which is investing in underlying hedge funds that is supposed to be somewhere between stocks and bonds. We also have a private debt product because high net worth investors typically seek in retirement at some point and love income. So if they can get kind of high single digits income, that's something they definitely are seeking out. And then we have a private real estate, actually it's a direct vehicle that will go into private direct real estate deals, primarily in the Southeast, but we do work with different operators all around the country. And then lastly, we have a more opportunistic vehicle that really goes across all the areas of private investments, whether it's private equity, private or opportunistic debt, real estate, natural resources, and really just an opportunistic bucket if we can find some niche strategies that we think make sense or opportune right now in the current environment. We like those as well. Okay. So let's step back a little bit and let's talk about your career at Hamrickenberg. A lot of people don't know what a chief investment officer does. Maybe you can talk about your progression. You joined in 2005. You got elevated to that role about five years ago or so. What was the progression like throughout your career there when you first came in, again, and then the various promotions along the way? So when I joined in 2005, Hamrickenberg was about a billion in assets, somewhere around 30 something employees. So as you can imagine, it's quite a small company. And I've always been in the investment department. And what we do in the investment department is we're doing all the asset allocation work. So we're determining different asset allocation models, how much to put in stocks, how much to put in bonds, alternatives, etc. And then we're also doing all the manager selection, both on the public side, which is mutual funds, ETFs, as well as the alternative side, which is what I was talking about earlier, hedge funds and private investments. So when I got to Hummersburg in 2005, I was really a generalist. I was doing all of the above. And that really was a good precursor to get quite a bit of experience across asset classes in asset allocation to kind of get me prepared for the role I have today. As we've grown, I was kind of the de facto CIO. That became official in 2014. And at that point, the principals of the firm or owners of the firm, I wasn't one at that point, kind of gave me the opportunity to build out the team further. So at that point, I was able to hire more analysts and really kind of define the roles within different asset classes. And then I would work with the analysts in their respective roles and bounce ideas. And then as a group, we would then push ideas up to our investment committee. So I've kind of done it all. We've grown now to $6 billion in assets, and we have a much diverse client base. We have kind of our typical client, the 2 to 10, and then very large clients that have been attracted to our alternatives offering, which we've really built out over time, which I kind of touched on earlier. Yeah. So you talked about the ideas go up to the investment committee. How's your interaction with the investment committee? Are you leading that effort? Are you leading the research effort and making sure there's consistency across that? How does that work when thinking about what products or what sectors and asset classes are appropriate for your various clientele? We have an investment department and there's now 10 of us in our department. And the analysts 
meet weekly and we discuss our performance, our allocations, any opportunities in the market, and we have two investment committees a month. One is based on asset allocation and the other is based on alternatives. And at those two meetings, we're pushing up recommendations to the investment committee. We're also reviewing our allocations and tactical tilts, meaning where are we kind of deviating from where we are on a strategic asset allocation basis? Where are we making bets in the market? And so we have to justify those on a quarterly basis, depending on the asset class, to our investment committee and make sure that these tilts still make sense. So I lead the investment committee. The analysts are the ones responsible to push up the recommendations. And then we have a healthy debate at our investment committee, which consists of five senior partners that have investment backgrounds with CFAs, and it's a very healthy debate. As I'm sure you can appreciate, there's something similar at Double Line. So it's very interactive. It's very, can get high intensity, but I think it gets us to where we need to be in, in terms of our allocations and the underlying managers we use. So from that perspective, what is the healthy debate these days? What is the big topic that's causing the most either consternation or I wouldn't say conflict, but what are the biggest things being debated today? Well, I think the hot topic is, are we going in a recession and when? And I would say that it's very difficult, obviously, to predict that. What we've tried to do within our asset allocation process is really rely on fact-based decision-making. And because you can really have, within an investment committee, you can have kind of the loudest voice win. And that's not what we want to happen. We want the facts to kind of speak for themselves. So while there's a lot of warning signals out there with regards to are we going in a recession and when, the yield curve inverted, I think today it's not, we have $16 trillion in negative yields out there. That can be an, another warning sign. The trade war is it escalating or not. But we're really just kind of, we're watching the data. And as long as a consumer remains healthy, and we're kind of looking at a lot of these recession indicators, and right now things look okay. So our asset allocation process kind of leads us when we see those recession indicators start turning red, we'll trim our equities. But at this point, we're not there. But that doesn't mean that a lot of people aren't saying it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And we do talk about that, but we're relying on the data right now. And we just don't think we're at that point yet. So you said that the data is not flashing red to you today. Is it amber? Is it orange? (laughs) Is it still very green? You mentioned the inversion of the curve. I think you're talking about twos, tens, probably what you're referring to there. But the curve is pretty inverted from the front end out. Again, I'm not trying to offer up debate here on this, but I'm just curious, are you in the orange camp? You're in the yellow camp? You're in that yellowish green? What does it look like today? I would say, look, inverted yield curves have preceded every recession in the last 50 years. So yes, this is definitely making us nervous. But if you look at a lot of the consumer data, which is 70% of the economy, things are holding up pretty well there. Strong retail sales, a lot of the earnings coming out with the retailers look good, consumer confidence held up. On the manufacturing side, it is pretty worrisome. You've seen the P 
PMI global manufacturing decline for 15 straight months. You're now starting to see some of these economies go into recession, and it is concerning. But we really just have to look at 70% of their economy is the consumer. That's holding things up. My concern and a lot of the committee's concern is that if this trade war escalates and now you're starting to see some of the consumer goods with tariffs on them, how is this going to affect the sentiment with the consumer? Are they going to slow down? Are companies going to slow down their hiring? So those are the things we're keeping an eye on. We haven't seen kind of the employment numbers turn quite yet, but it's something we're keeping an eye on, and we're looking at it on a month-to-month basis. All right, so I'm going to grade that as a yellow, given your feedback there. <laughs> yeah, but... I didn't really answer that question, did I? <laughs> no, it's good. That's the beauty of our positions is that we don't always have to give an answer. You just got to sound smart. I agree with you, though, because as we sit here today, this is recorded about a month or so before it'll be released, but you saw service PMI surprise the upside by a pretty decent amount today. And as you mentioned, the consumers there, yes, we have yield curves, yes, manufacturing's there, but I kind of point to the idea that back in 2015, early 16, we did have a manufacturing slowdown. We had PMIs dropping. They weren't as precipitous and as coordinated as this one, but we did have that. And with the service sector just maintaining the levels it was with the data there, the consumer kind of stayed and hung in there. So again, no two markets are the same, but there does seem to be a lot of parallels to that time period. Although, again, we have lower yields again. We have this, as you said, the overhang of the 16 plus trillion in negative yielding bonds. And it's really just, it is completely different today. But there are, I think it's pretty fair to say there's some green signals, there's some yellow, there's some red, and it kind of blends out to a yellow in my playbook today. Yeah, I would agree. All right, good. So we're on the same page there. So when you talk about this investment committee, what are you trying to do with the expectations within this? Are you trying to say, here's the direction we want to tilt? Are they saying we want to be exactly 5% underweight? We want to have exactly 10% to this asset class or sector? And how do those shift from meeting to meeting? You said you have kind of two of them a month. How do those allocations shift and change those allocations? Would you do a 20% move in a month? Do you do a half a percent move? How do you think about that and the way you kind of leg into those positions? Yeah, we are pretty gradual with our moves, and that's by design. At the asset class level, when we're shifting, say, from stocks to bonds, we want to be very convicted in that. And so we have some pretty stringent triggers around that, and one of them being recession risk. We kind of talked about that. That trigger hasn't turned red yet. Momentum right now, momentum is still looking pretty good. We're not that far off all-time highs. And then valuations right now, while not cheap, not expensive either, we kind of consider them average. So Let me cut you off there too, because you talked about momentum. And I feel like you're kind of alluding to credit markets and or equities when you say that. But also we've had momentum in yields globally too. How do you think about that too, when you've really had this proliferation of momentum really across the major sectors of the market, not just rates, but also credit, also equities. How does that lead into your thinking and how to kind of change allocation and risk positioning? I would take kind of the debt and equity separately. We did make a change in our allocation right at the beginning of April when that was right around the time when the Fed made it shift that it looked like the next move was likely a cut to rates it was right when the yield curve 
first inverted. That was the three-month tenure. And it didn't look like there would be a lot of pressure on yield. And so we had been using some kind of cash plus-like products because since the yield curve was so flat, it just seemed like why take on the duration risk? So we were in those yield plus, and then we said, okay, let's push that out. We're making us a little nervous to see the inversion. We think the Fed's going to be cutting. We don't think that will be pressure on rates. And that one actually worked out. That was the discussion we had in our investment committee meeting. But at the asset class level, you kind of talked about the momentum. Generally, we're not trying to fight the momentum. So generally, until we want to see the fundamentals, and then we want to see the momentum kind of confirm that. And so in terms of like cutting equities, right now, momentum's strong in our opinion. And if we see that turn, because often the stock market is a forward indicator, we're going to be watching that recession data pretty quickly. And we've seen a lot of those coincide is when that's what we were looking for last December when the market fell off a cliff. Does that mean that the next recession is here? And it ended up, you know, that was not the case. And so if momentum falls off a cliff with equities, we're going to be watching our recession indicators very closely to see, is this kind of the next bear market? And really when we shift at a broad level, at the asset allocation level, we're just trying to cut off those big dips, those big recession bear markets where the market's down 20% or more. We're not trying to catch every up and down of the market. That's just not what we're trying to accomplish. That's a lot harder to do. It's easier to catch the bigger strokes at times, typically. So when you made this decision, how is that implemented? So give our listeners some insight into, okay, you had this idea to move kind of from these cash plus to maybe more, I'll just call them intermediate term type bonds. How do you implement that? Is it we're going to shift just all these allocations over the next day or two? Are you using funds? Are you using ETFs to transition? Walk us through the mechanics of how that may look like to someone who's not familiar with all this asset allocation. So I would kind of take that like a two response. I would say first, at the investment committee level, we use ETFs and active funds. Within fixed income, we're definitely more convicted on the active side. So in this particular example, we wanted something very defensive, core-like, and we had a manager that we had used before, very comfortable. We had actually moved out of them to go in this cash plus product and came back in. Once we make the decision at the investment committee level, then we make the changes across all our models. We have a rebalancing system that we use, and that pushes through the trades at the individual client level. And then our advisors go in and look at every single client and decide, does it make sense to do this entire trade right this second, looking at gains and other potential circumstances for the client, but generally they're going to do it unless there's a client-specific reason not to. So it it really just kind of filters down. We use technology to help us make the changes, but the particular funds and moves are made at a higher investment committee level. Okay. So when you have these healthy debates, I think as you described them or discussions, what has been the most contentious one that you can recall, let's say over the last five to 10 years? What has been the one that really you've struggled with, it was a challenge, or again, it just was contentious in general? Yeah. I think one of the big debates that really has been ongoing, I want to say for five years, but we have been making gradual changes, 
is debate between domestic and international equities. As everyone's probably painfully aware, international equities have underperformed quite a bit over a long period of time. What we've been trying to wrap our arms around is we construct our model portfolios around modern portfolio theory. We, on a yearly basis, we come up with our return projections for each asset class along with volatility and correlations and build out these model portfolios along the efficient frontier. So depending on the client's risk, it goes up and down the risk spectrum. So in order to kind of look at what the mix should be between domestic and international, it really is very dependent on what we think the return will be for those two asset classes. And part of the debate was some people loved international, it's cheap. Some people hate international because of the demographics and the weak economies and the potential blow up in Europe. But once we kind of broke it down into what do we think the returns are going to be, we looked across domestic international and we said, should international outperform domestic equities just on a basic level? And the correlations have moved up so much between domestic and international that we think it's a much more global economy. And over the long term, we think that domestic and international should have similar returns. But international stocks, because of the currency aspect, really have higher volatility. So if you kind of put that into an optimizer, what that tells you is that you should have, you know, much less allocation to international stocks. So that's how we kind of came to a conclusion on that debate. It's not whether Europe's imploding tomorrow or, yes, the demographics are compelling in some places and not. What do the numbers tell us and can we kind of come to a conclusion that we can live with and what is that telling us to do with our allocation? I'm trying to picture the periodic investment committee meetings and just thinking about some potentially contentious debates here. At the end of one of these meetings, if there is still disagreement, how are the final decisions made? Is it ultimately a consensus is reached or do you perhaps as the CIO make the final arbiter of decisions? It is a consensus decision-making process. And typically these discussions are over something big like domestic international split that, as you know, asset allocation at the highest asset class level is really going to drive your returns more than anything else. So we had this debate over many, many investment committees. And what my job as the head of the investment committee is, how do we come to a conclusion based on facts and statistics, not versus someone's hunch on what they think is going to happen in the market? So, what we do is we allow kind of the naysayers to make their point, and if we can come to a conclusion that is supported by data, then we'll do that. And so really, at the end of the day, it really comes down to what is the data telling us and can everyone live with it? And generally, by the time we hash this out over multiple sessions, while some people may not be the biggest cheerleader, they definitely can get on board and support it and allocate it or 
appropriately for their clients. And I will say, on another note, it's me and a bunch of middle-aged men. So that's always an interesting dynamic as well. Yeah. How does that play out, too? A strong, vocal, educated woman who has a lot of experience, a lot of depth in the markets with these middle-aged males. <laughs> Understanding that they may listen to this as well. So if you have to couch it, feel free. But don't tell us, you know, that. Exactly. Now, I would say, look, I definitely have strong opinions and... I try to be convicted, but I also try to bring together consensus and hear different views and be able to kind of research if someone has a particular view. So as I kind of alluded to at the beginning of when I was describing the process, it's my goal to not just have the biggest bully win or whoever's kind of speaking the loudest on a subject. It's really going to come down to what is our process? What is the data telling us? So it makes it easier in that respect that it's not that I think I'm right. I have data to back it up. We've always used that as the kind of crux and or the crutch, I guess. It's the crux of the investment process, just using data, trying to look at the data, try to take a refresh view, try to pull out those preconceived notions, the biases we all have, and really just say, what is the data telling us? And for every good data point, what's the bad data point? What's the tracker of the predictability of this? And we know it won't look the same going forward, but trying to give yourselves that good chance. And it's those processes that it's discipline, I think, at the end of the day, which helps drive a lot of good asset allocation decisions is that here's the target. This is what we do. We know this is when we want to step into things and make sure that that gut feeling or the overarching kind of momentum or sentiment in the marketplace isn't driving our decision making. Exactly. And that's really been one of my goals over the years is to create more of a structured process around when we would be making decisions. I would say looking back on kind of the 2008-2009 period, we did a very good job, in my opinion, of getting conservative ahead of the downturn. But one of the things we didn't do as well as is get more aggressive coming out of the downturn. So now we have more of a structure in place as to when to lighten up and when to get back in. And a lot of that has to do with when is the momentum turning? And that means we're never going to catch the tops and the bottoms perfectly. We're going to ride the beginning part of this market down. But if that's kind of verified by our recession indicators, that's when we lighten up. And on the flip side, we do go in a recession we're looking at, okay, when do those recession indicators come off and when is the momentum in the market telling us it looks like we're all clear? That's kind of the goal. So I have a very 2019 question for you on that. So we keep talking about a recession and what is the trade going into recession? We think about, you'd mentioned kind of the low growth rates in the Eurozone. We've talked about negative yielding bonds. Those are proliferated throughout the Eurozone as well as Japan. What does one do to kind of play defense on if indeed a recession is forthcoming? Do you still look to the bond market? Do you just look at cash? Do you think of things outside of that kind of traditionally like gold? Do you think your alternatives will hang in there? What are you looking for when you say, okay, the recession indicators are coming. Here we are. What's the game plan or what are you guys thinking about? I don't want to give away all your ideas for free, but in general, kind of broad strokes of what you're thinking about there. Definitely say, I mean, if we think a recession is on the near term horizon, that would be a move to 
fixed income, most likely. We look at it at the time, but unless rates are negative at the time, which is not our base case scenario, but I guess you can never say never, we'd look to decide then. But as of now, if, if it happened tomorrow, which, again, is not our expectation, yes, we would move from equities to fixed income. And securities that we felt like would have kind of a negative correlation to equities and hopefully make some return when stocks are selling off. We've talked about the recession, this coming recession, quite a bit, and that's always a scary thought. But as investors, we tried to take the disciplined approach. And as you mentioned, you look at the data. On the other side of our business, what are some of the things that you're hearing from your clients? I mean, what's the sentiment out there? What are they thinking about? What are they afraid of or the general feel today? Right now, our clients are fairly quiet. I think a lot of times people don't realize that strong return years are typically mean that lean years are in the future at some point. You just can't keep squeezing it forever. But I would agree with you on the sentiment we hear. I think given our focus more on fixed income, we hear a lot about the negative yields. What happens when we go negative? And our base case with you, we're with you on that, is that we really don't think we go negative. If so, it's going to be really bad. It's going to be bad for fixed income. It's going to be bad for banks. It's going to be bad for insurance companies. As you see the anecdotal evidence globally, you see this in Japan. You're starting to see just how decrepit it is in the banking system and insurance companies within the eurozone. And it's kind of a, a strange model where you essentially get taxed for having any amount of wealth or any amount of savings. Yeah, this is definitely concerning. And it's something that we're talking about quite a bit within our department and kind of coming up with scenarios and discussions about how does this end? Are they able to grow themselves out of it? Is it kind of a gradual correction to normalcy? Or is it a sudden shock that kind of ripples through the broader equity and fixed income markets? So, you know, it's definitely concerning, and if you guys have an opinion on how this all plays out, I'd love to pick your brain on it. But so far, I haven't really read anything super compelling on a definite scenario than how this plays out. I think there's a lot of different ideas out there at this point. I just think that as long as momentum is in your favor as a negative yield buyer, and so if you buy negative yielding bonds and you're trying to make money, You're not trying to just say, look, I accept this as a way of losing a small amount of money for the near term. But if you actually are buying that to make money, you have to believe that yields continue to go negative. Otherwise, you have this negative carry at the end of the day. And so I think that we can push deeper in negative territory. But at some point, when it stops going more negative, I think people will have some form of realization that we are just losing money in this. And so, again, if you have to buy these because of regulation and the way the ECB rules, the Eurozone rules have been created, that you have to buy this kind of debt or you have to buy these corporations, it's hard to get around. But as you said, you're allocating capital for individuals who've saved, who've earned, and they don't want probably to do that. And so I think at some point, as we hit a sideways kind of yield market, there will be some kind of head scratching saying, hmm, well, I made 10% in my negative yielding bonds this year. How much better does it get than that? And look, you can get another 10% because the yields could move more, more negative. But at some point, I think you have these ramifications elsewhere where you hurt the financial system, you hurt the confidence of the system because a normal worker out there who's making median wages realizes that they're losing money every month by keeping money in the bank. 
And so it's a different way of the government stealing your wealth. I really consider it a wealth tax at this point. And so I'm hoping the U.S. doesn't go down that route because we haven't seen it works anywhere today. So going back to facts and evidence, it's a small sample size. But that said, there is no evidence that it actually works. The momentum trade has to end at some point. The question is how and how dramatic is it and how do you kind of get out of this current predicament? Yeah, well, the good news is we're not there yet. So like I like to tell our investors, we don't have negative yields yet. And so for now, it's not something that we have to be that concerned about, but we continue to analyze it and think about it. I still think at this point, if I'm making a forecast, when we have this conversation in five years, Stephanie, we're going to sit back and say, what the heck was everybody thinking? What were people doing buying all these negative yielding bonds? Or we're going to have the conversation is, why the heck didn't we buy a lot more of them, right? <laughs> and so I think it's a 90-10. I'm going to wait 90%. We're going to say, what the heck we're thinking? But there still is that small chance that maybe we say, damn, we missed the trade of a lifetime that was blatantly obvious because of momentum. So we really appreciate you taking the time talking to us today. Before we go on to the next segment, I want to talk about one last thing, because a lot of people don't know what a chief investment officer does, and that's why we're doing the CIO series, is to get different views of what CIOs do in different parts of the business. And so when you're looking for talent and you're thinking about hiring the next set of analysts, what are some of the criteria that you use for your candidates, whether that's pedigree, education, volunteer? What do you look for in those employees who will fit into the culture that you've helped cultivate over the last 15 or so years? that there's a lot of characteristics, but I really like to have diversity of mindset. So someone coming from a different angle than what we currently have is good. I think with our work on alternatives, we are constantly looking at new strategies. And I think so someone really has to like to learn and, and go into areas where maybe they haven't explored before. So really someone that's willing to kind of think outside the box. And we're $6 billion, which is a nice size, but we're still a small team. So someone that really has to be a team player and be willing to work across projects or asset classes as needed. And my big thing is also I don't have time for big egos. I want people to be confident in their ideas and expressions, but no one's right all the time, so you have to work well as a team and kind of mesh well, I would say. But smart people willing to work hard. Right now, we have a great team, and I think they would all be described that way. Yeah, smart and hungry, I think, are always good attributes to have. So one last question, too, for those out there that don't know enough about the alternative worlds or isn't that familiar with all the different options in the alternatives. What would you recommend as something for them to read or study? Is there some curriculum out there you'd recommend? Is there a set of books that you found useful? Anything that you could give advice to some of our listeners who may be more curious about alternatives, and that's before they go and hire Homrick as their advisor? I haven't seen any great books. We've actually put together some kind of short white papers slash kind of one-pagers. As you guys know, the typical person has a very short time frame in terms of how much they want to spend on something. So we try to break it down and make it very easy in terms of explaining through, say, like a PowerPoint. It's really a pretty easy concept is that you have your regular stocks and bonds that trade every day and have liquidity, and then you have kind of 
the private world where you don't have liquidity. And the idea is that you will be paid for that through higher return. And that's typically been the case because most people want to have their money tomorrow if they need it. And so you have to be willing to give that up to access some of these higher returns. So I'll put that on my to-do list is what is a good kind of resource for kind of the typical person to learn more. Like I said, it's been great. It's great to talk to you again, Stephanie. It's been a while. But also, I think before you leave, Sam has a little uh, game he likes to play at the end called Sherman Says. So I'll let him introduce that to you real quick. Yeah, some people call it a game. Some people call it torture. So I will (laughs) call it a game. And the rules of the road are, Stephanie, is I will provide you a prompt and to which I will expect to receive a top-of-mind response. And what I'll do is I'll start out with Mr. Sherman, and then we'll alternate back and forth. No pressure. No pressure. The first one goes to Mr. Sherman. U.S. debt to GDP. Explosive. Actually, it's been stabilizing over the last year or two, but it has been explosive. All right. Ms. Lang, corporate leverage, U.S., Worrisome. Data privacy. Gone. U.S. economy. Stable. Fed independence. It exists. Negative interest rate policy in the U.S. Possible. Ooh. I always like to say possible, but not as plausible. <laughs> I like that. (laughs) Investor sentiment. Average. Too worried about the yield curve. Capital expenditure spending. Needs to go higher. Trade talks. What trade talks? Take your pick, I yeah, guess. Yeah, exactly. it's like, yeah, <laughs> it's, like, it's just different on, every day. Off, on, on, off, off yeah. who knows? Is there even a communication line? Uh, what trade are we talking about now? What tariffs? What country? Ugh. Never ending. How's that? I'll take it. And the last one for you, Stephanie, is Georgia Tech. Boo. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, you're a bulldog, right? That's right. Good dog. Okay. Okay. Well, it's football season, so we wish you well down there in the south. So good luck to you and your alma mater there. Thank you very much. Appreciate All right. it. Yeah. Well, thanks again. You've been listening to Stephanie Legg, the Chief Investment Officer and Principal at Homrick Berg. She joined us today from Atlanta. This is the Sherman Show podcast. So you can give us feedback, Show at DoubleLine.com. You can find us on the Twitter, as Sam likes to say. Twitter handle is Sherman Show Pod or it's at Sherman Show Pod, something like that. It's right behind you. I can't read behind <laughs> me. But there is a poster behind me that says it. So for those of you who can see it, there you go. But it's at Sherman Show Pod is the Twitter handle. You can give us emails. You can give us feedback. We're on Stitcher now. We're on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play. If you have any other favorites that you want to listen to this on, let us know. Again, thank you so much, Stephanie. It was a pleasure and a privilege talking to you today. Thanks for having me.
The audio presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the expressed written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefor, including and respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any DoubleLine entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any DoubleLine entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2019, DoubleLine Capital.